Hi, I'm Izzy. Uh, I'm at the University of Liverpool. I've just finished my undergraduate degree in pharmacology and I was one of the uh, summer students for Animal Free Research UK. It is important to, to advance medical research in the most human relevant way possible because animals are, that we're using at the moment to test on are not the same as humans. There are differences and they have to be overcome somehow and the only way to fully overcome those issues is by using research techniques that are derived from humans. Hi there, this is Carla Owen, Chief Executive of Animal Free Research UK and this is the Animal Free Labcast. It's a new upbeat show dedicated to a kinder modern science that puts humans at the heart of medical research. In each episode, I'll be speaking to someone who is helping to make our vision of a world where human diseases are cured faster without animal suffering an ever closer reality. I'll be asking why animal-free research is so important to them and why it's important to put humans, not animals, at the centre of medical research. Today, my guest is Professor Mike Philpott, who I spoke with at our Modernising Medical Research Conference. Mike is a skin expert at Queen Mary University of London and the chair of our first Animal Replacement Centre of Excellence, otherwise known as the ARC. I'll be talking with Mike about his innovative research, what government and the pharmaceutical industry can do to speed up the transition to human-relevant science, and how Patchy the Rat helped him realise there was a better way. Yeah, so I'm Mike Philpott, and I am Professor of Cutaneous Biology in the Blizzard Institute, which is part of Queen Mary University, London. Could you give us a just a, a kind of simple lay introduction to your work? Yeah, so I'm interested in skin biology, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in skin biology both in terms of the glands and appendages, so how hair follicles work, sebaceous glands work, sweat glands work, but also I'm interested in understanding skin cancer. Mm-hmm. And so we have two, two real approaches, the skin glands and appendages, which is how people perceive themselves, and then the, the skin cancer side of our research. They sound quite diverse areas. They are very diverse. So you you could argue that working on hair follicles and skin glands and appendages, you know, is not medical research. It's Mm -hmm. kind of people's perception and appearance. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I would counter that, uh, you know, hair is certainly seen as one of the great, how we we see ourselves. Mm. and, And people get very traumatized by hair loss. And in fact, even in cancer therapies, it's quite clear that after the initial shock of, of a cancer diagnosis, mm. the next thing that traumatizes people most is the fact that they may lose their hair. Of course. And that even means that some patients actually will refuse treatment oh, because goodness. of the worry of losing their hair. Yeah. So there are really important issues to, to cover there as well. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, yes, then we, then we have the, the skin cancer side of our research. So, yeah, we, we have a very diverse portfolio, but it, it keeps us excited and keeps us, keeps us going. So thinking back to earlier in your career, Mike, what was it for you that made you want to go down an animal-free mm. route? Yeah. Well, when I started my PhD, I was working on, on the hair follicle. I was funded by the Scientific and Engineering Research Council, and it was a case studentship. So it's a studentship in collaboration with industry. And mm. in my case, it was Unilever. Mm-hmm. And we started working on using rats and rat skin. Mm-hmm. After about a year, I started to feel more and more uncomfortable that I was basically, you know, using an animal 
just for its skin. Mm. And I became more and more uncomfortable doing that. It was aided by the fact we had a pet rat mm-hmm. called Patchy. And I used to think, well, you know, how can I go home at night and look the rat in the eye? And it was a very friendly rat. It used to wander around the house. It used to follow my wife up and down the stairs like a little dog and would come and sit on the armchair at night and I'd scratch it behind its ear and it would fall asleep on the arm of the chair. So you kind of think, well, you know, how can I look that rat in the eye when I'm going in the next day and, and using some of its brothers and sisters? Mm. And so I spoke to my PhD supervisor and his view was, well, yes, you know, we are interested in human skin, human hair follicles. We don't really want to work on animals. And of course, you leave a didn't want us to work on animals. They, they were you know, very keen to be moving towards human models mm. at, at that time. And so my supervisor basically sourced human skin for me. And the rest was history. We started using human skin. We took out hair follicles, showed that we could grow human hair follicles in vitro, which was a major breakthrough. Everybody in the world now uses that model, mm. including some of my previous colleagues and, and friends who were 99% of the time using mouse. No, they don't use any mouse at all. They use human. Mm. So it, it, it was great. And that, that really got me on this, this pathway of thinking, well, we don't want to use animals for, for skin research. It also helped that the EU came out with a directive banning the use of animals for testing in cosmetics. Yes. And so the, the cosmetic companies were very keen to go down the human model route. And so that that pushed that work even further. Mm. And then we started questioning about the, you know, the the human skin models and and cancer models. And it, shouldn't we be using human models for, for human cancer? I, I was lucky that when I moved to London, I moved to a department that I would say 98% of the people there, maybe even nearly 100%, use human models, human tissues. We were interested in human diseases. So we had a big interest in rare human diseases. And so we would get biopsies and grow the cells up and make the cell lines. Mm-hmm. Also, it was a department that had pioneered grafting of human skin in Burns patients. Mm-hmm. So we were growing skin cells. We were growing 3D skin models to grow onto patients. And so that really led to, well, let's use those as our models in the laboratory. And we don't need to use, use mouse. O- over the years, you know, th- those models have proven to be, you know, great models for understanding human skin. And actually, they're far cheaper also than using yeah. animals. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the fact that they are more relevant to human disease, which is, is what most people are interested in, and the fact that you know, they're cheaper, which is a big driver, has meant that more and more people take up those models and work with them. And we, we've had people from all over the world coming to our lab to be trained up to use those models mm. and then taking those models back to their own laboratory. So you said that they were cheaper, Mike. Um, why is that? A number of reasons. First, I mean, if you're using animal models, you've got to house those animals, you've got yeah. to look after those animals. And so the, the cost of housing animals in an animal house university is, is, is very expensive. Mm. I mean, it's very expensive. Whereas if we are using human skin, we go to plastic surgeons who are carrying out uh, cosmetic surgery. Yeah. And so basic people who are having facelifts, breast reductions, and tummy tucks. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of those people having those, those surgeries. And they're very happy to consent and allow us to have that. That skin normally goes in a bin. Yeah. And so they're very happy to agree that we, we can take that skin to the laboratory for our research. We explain to them the research that we're doing, mm-hmm. that we're understand, trying to understand human skin and human disease. And we always make it clear that, you know, we don't want to use animals as well. And that's helpful for that. And so we're taking that skin and we're growing it in the laboratory. And so just doing those experiments where we just have to buy tissue culture medium to grow the cells mm. and plastics is just, is just much cheaper than using animals. So something that might otherwise have just ended up in the bin yeah. is helping human patients and animals exactly. as well. Totally, totally. Yep. So, so this would just win. go in a bin and be thrown away. And yeah. so these patients are very happy to, to consent course. and allow us to have that skin. Please, could you tell us 
how you are involved in Animal Free Research UK. Yeah, so I think my involvement with Animal Free Research UK goes right back to the days when it was the Dr. Hadbin Trust. Hmm. And we were given a grant to develop a in vitro model of human skin cancer. Mm-hmm. And we started that work. It went very well. I think developing that model was the final clincher in our getting these models accepted such that we no longer were challenged to produce mouse data. And based on that, I was then approached later by the Dr. Happen Trust, as it still was, to ask if we were interested in creating a center and to take on a program grant. And we discussed that with the university and the university were very supportive. We went right to the principal of Queen Mary, who thought it was a great idea. And in fact, even managed to organize going through chairman's actions at college council that we could actually use the title center. Mm-hmm. Because to use a center title, you it had to be approved by college council. You couldn't just call yourself a center. Uh-huh. And so the principal got chairman's actions that we could call ourselves a center. And we then developed a, a five-year program of research with Animal Free Research UK as it changed its name to just as we started. And that's at the Animal Free, no? Animal Replacement Centre of Excellence at Queen Mary University, London. Fabulous. Yes. And and it's a it's a wonderful centre. I've visited many times and it's it's my favourite of all of the laboratories. Thank you. Yes. Um just just rewinding a little bit, when you said um that you had your skin cancer model accepted. Mm-hmm. Who who was that accepted by, Mike? Really the, the journals. So we mm. were publishing these models or trying to publish these models and we were always being told that they wanted us to include mouse data. Mm. And we did in those days, what what we did, we found a group in, in, in Europe who had mouse tumours. So we actually just scrounged some tumours off them. We, we weren't going to make mouse models ourselves. We, no. We're adamant we weren't do that. So we, we scrounged some tumours from people and put those into our papers. And then as, as the years went by, um, we carried on publishing those cell lines and comparing them to human tumours. Mm. And suddenly we were just no longer asked. I don't know, there was this, this acceptance that we'd published a number of papers using these models. And we were suddenly just no longer asked to validate them against the mouse. Gosh. Which I think, you know, made sense because we were validating them against human tumours. Yeah. And we'd always argued that just because you express these genes in a bit of mouse skin didn't mean that that was a human tumour. It was a mouse tumour. And so that, that was our, our argument for not doing those sort of experiments. So why why was that so important for you to to only be able to do the human um, research after uh, going forwards? Because we were just very uncomfortable using using animals. I mean, mm. it started off as just being uncomfortable doing experiments on animals and, and, and killing animals. Mm. And then, of course, we started thinking about it even more and, and I guess, becoming more involved in, in the animal-free campaign area and realizing that actually the models were poor models. Mm. So the more we read about it and, and reviews were coming out saying that you know, mouse skin was a very poor model of human skin. And these, these tumors didn't look like the human tumors that we're modeling. They were hyper-proliferative. They divided very rapidly. They would kill the mouse um, very quickly. And so they were very aggressive, whereas the human ones are aggressive in terms of they will eat away your tissue, eat away bone, but they really spread to other parts of the body. And so we just felt that the, the mouse model just was not the right model to be using anyway if we were interested in human disease. And so that that was 
another main driver it just wasn't relevant for what we wanted to understand we wanted to understand how these pathways were involved in human skin cancer and not what they were doing in a mouse even just from a uh, lay perspective you think about human skin versus mm. mouse skin it, it just looks and feels completely different doesn't it totally different i mean you know human skin has a lot of hair follicles but the mouse skin is just covered in hair follicles mm. thousands of them mm. you know the mouse skin doesn't have sweat glands mm. and you know a piece of mouse skin or a mouse cell will, will transform into a tumor cell almost immediately mm. it takes very few hits to turn a mouse cell into a tumor cell whereas humans it takes many more hits before it becomes a tumor cell so yeah totally different and the, the, the markers we're interested in stem cells in, in human skin the sorts of stem cells that you find in mouse skin the markers they're, they're totally different they're expressing different proteins so they're probably very different cell entities so the the research that we've been funding um, as mm. Animal Free Research UK is on the skin cancer side, I believe. Yep. So you've been funding work on the skin cancer side, but also especially on the head and neck cancer. Mm. Yeah. So head and neck cancers often come under sort of you know research with with, with the skin because it's a squamous cell carcinoma, uh -huh. and head and neck cancers are, are you know, extremely nasty tumors because of where they're localized. Mm. The um, survival rate and the success of treating these hasn't really changed in 30 years Goodness. and you know they're, they're, they're very nasty metastatic diseases and so we've been working on both developing machine learning so we can understand how to diagnose which tumors are going to be have a poor prognostic outcome mm. but also um adrian in, in our department was working on developing basic ex, ex vivo models to understand how cancer cells move out of these tumors and spread to the rest of the body is highly metastasized. And it's metastasis which kills you. Mm -hmm. And head and neck cancers are highly metastatic. And so Adrian has been developing some fantastic models where he can now actually model this metastasis from human tumors. So metastasis is when um, you have the primary cancer then spreading to yeah, different... Yeah, so the primary cancer would leave its its origin and spread to other parts of the body and then start growing. And that that's usually what, what, what kill, kills the patient. Mm -hmm. Yes. And... Have, has Adrian made any breakthroughs? Yes, so he's made a number of breakthroughs. So first of all, he has um, identified markers that specifically pick out those cells which are going to metastasize. Mm -hmm. And when we put those into the machine learning models, um, they have something like a 98% chance of success rate at predicting which tumors are going to have a poor prognostic outcome for the patient. Mm -hmm. But then he's used those markers to then develop models where he can then look at how those cells actually move from a tumor in vitro and move into a sort of, you know, a fluidic system. So they start to spread from the tumor. And he's developed all this ex vivo. So again, we don't have to use animals. And, you know, one of the big arguments for using animals is that the in vivo models we use do not model metastasis. Mm. That, you know, we can, we can grow tumors, we can grow them into 3D models, but we're not modeling how they spread around the body. What Adrian has done with the funding from, from, Animal Free Research UK has actually developed ex vivo models where he can now model in the laboratory the cells that are migrating out of the cancer and spreading around the body. So that sounds like that could be really game-changing for patients. I think it's going to be game-changing for patients because yeah. you can now actually visualize these cells. You can watch these individual cells actually as they, as they move out of the tumor. Mm -hmm. And so you can start to understand what they do as they move out of that tumor. So a much more detailed, I think, analysis over a much shorter period of time. So you can look, you know, if you use an animal model, you're probably looking after, you know, two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. Here, you can almost look on a daily basis and visualize these cells as they start to spread out of the, the tumor and start to move into a fluidic system where they will then spread around the body. 
So you mentioned ex vivo, Mike. Can you just explain um, for people at home what, what you mean by that? Yeah, so ex vivo is where you take the whole tumour from a patient or you take a tumour from a patient mm-hmm. and you keep that tumour intact in a dish mm-hmm. and you then look at how cells are moving out of that tumour. So ex vivo basically means that you've taken a tumour out of a patient and you are then keeping it alive in a dish and you're not breaking up in, into individual cells, you're keeping it in its three-dimensional form. Ex vivo, Latin for outside of the body? Yes, yes, yes. Whereas in, in vitro basically means do, in glass, in a dish. So for in vitro, what we would do is you would perhaps take a tumour and then you would break that tumour up using chemicals into individual cells mm-hmm. and then grow those individual cells within a dish. And so that's in vitro. Gosh, that's amazing. So how far away are we from that actually benefiting patients who are, you know, suffering from cancer? It, that That's slightly difficult to know because, you know, once you start taking these in, into the realm of drug discovery, mm. then you have to go through all the all the various, you know, hurdles to, yeah. to develop drugs. But I think what Adrian has now done, and he has actually validated this model using some of the known drugs, so we know that the models that he's developing are responding to the drugs in a way that we would expect them to 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 respond. Mm-hmm. So I think what he's developed is, is is a great first screen for identifying new drugs that could help to prevent cancer metastasis. That's really exciting. And also, of course, you know, he's developed a great model that he can now start to explore what other signals are involved in those cells spreading out quite early from, from a tumour. Mm-hmm. You can really just, you, you can visualise and see those cells very early on as they're coming out of the tumour and moving away from that tumour mass. You've mentioned Adrian quite a few times, Mike. T- tell us more about Adrian. Yeah. So, so a- a- Adrian Biddle is a um, well, he's now a lecturer in our department, but he was he was a postdoc at the time that we got our funding from Animal Free Research UK. He just had a fellowship from um, one of the research councils, hmm. and we appointed him to our lectureship funded by Animal Free Research UK specifically to to focus on developing his his ex vivo model of head and neck cancer metastasis. Mm-hmm. And Adrian then recruited um, Gihad Youssef as his postdoc. And so Adrian Biddle and Youssef together worked on both the machine learning and developing the ex vivo model of cancer metastasis. I think you were the first person to say to me, Mike, that it's all about having human models for human disease. Yes, yes. Yeah. That sounds like that's that's going to be the way that we're going to make breakthroughs for patients. I, I agree totally. I, th- I think, you know, we're now in, in an era of dramatic technology development and technology through history has always driven change. Mm. And I think in, in terms of understanding human disease and, and developing new treatments for human disease, you know, we, we're now at a stage where you know, we have the organs on the chip, we have the ability to print models, print tissues. The, the technology is now driving these changes. And I think these technologies are driving the changes such that they are going to make animal models redundant and it would be very hard to justify not using a human model going forward. So when you look into the future, Mike, how far away do you think that that is? That's a bit of an impossible question. Or? It is. I, I mean, the challenge still is, is, is developing the models. Mm. So we know that when we develop models, they work and they have a great prognostic value. The issue still is it takes funding to develop those models. So we've mm. developed a model for head and neck stem cell carcinoma, We've developed our models for skin cancer. Other people are developing models for other tumours. But you need that initial funding to develop mm-hmm. those models. And you know, once those models are developed, 
then they can be taken on and, and used. So I think the bottleneck is still, you know, getting research councils to fund those sorts of model developments because traditionally research councils who fund scientific research in, in, in the United Kingdom have been reluctant to fund model development. But that's what we need. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mike. It's My been pleasure. such a pleasure speaking with yep, you. It's been great being here. Thank you. It's a little known fact, but scientists can actually cure cancer in mice. They just can't do it in humans. Talking with Mike has helped me to understand a little better exactly why that is. Everyone agrees that we need to find better treatments for cancer. And with the work that Mike and Adrian are doing to understand the spread of cancer using cutting-edge technologies like organ-on-a-chip and machine learning, it really feels like that could soon be on the horizon. That's all we have time for in this episode of the Animal Free Labcast. Huge thanks to Mike for joining us. Don't forget to visit animalfreeresearchuk.org to make a donation if that's something you can do and to find out how you can support medical research that is helping cure diseases faster without animal suffering. Thank you for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review and share far and wide.